Good morning. This is West Virginia Morning. I'm Joseph Zechevich. Upshur County native Jane Ann Phillips is the author of six books, including her latest Night Watch, based on the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum in the aftermath of the Civil War. My work tends to start with a voice. I started out as a poet. I tend to sort of hear lines and then kind of be into writing something about a very specific character and a specific voice. That story and more coming up this West Virginia Morning. Support for West Virginia Morning is proudly provided by Luke Frazier. A conviction on a misdemeanor election crime has a West Virginia felon on parole going back to jail. Randy Yowie has more. Fayette County resident Daryl Sharp II was found guilty of unlawful voter registration while on parole for a felony conviction. Sharp got the maximum sentence, one year in jail and a $1,000 fine. West Virginia is among 13 states that restore voting rights after completion of a sentence, including parole. 20 states restore voting rights after someone is released from prison. Secretary of State Mac Warner says this first conviction under the state's tougher election fraud laws sends a significant message. Just one further indication that uh, we are going to continue this push for election integrity. West Virginia University Political Science Department Chair John Kilwine says in Sharp's case, the punishment doesn't fit the crime. It doesn't seem like my tax dollars should be, you know, supporting that guy in prison for, for, for that act. Warner says the court considered that Sharp's prior felonies were heinous and he had attempted election fraud once before. He was very intentionally making these uh, efforts uh, to vote. Sharp's conviction for election law violations is West Virginia's fourth in 2023. Kilwine says in a state with 1.8 million people, four in the year so far is not a glaring problem. It's a glaring problem to the MAGA types and to the Fox News types where they're constantly told, you know, Democrats are trying to steal elections. There's voter fraud. Warner says vote fraud vigilance is needed when, in the 2022 election cycle, 12 state races were decided by five votes or less. He says if the legislature wants to change the state's criminal voting policies, they can. But I don't anticipate that with the current legislature because I think they are just as concerned with election integrity as I am. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yowie in Charleston. A groundbreaking ceremony was held Monday for new veterans nursing facility in Beckley. Caroline McGregor reports. The Charles Calvin Rogers Veterans Nursing Facility is named in honor of Fayette County native and Congressional Medal of Honor recipient, U.S. Major General Charles Calvin Rogers. Rogers, who died in 1990, served in the Vietnam War and was honored for acts of heroism near the Cambodian border on November 1, 1968. Governor Jim Justice and state officials were joined by veterans, project managers, and directors from the West Virginia Department of Veterans Assistance for the ceremony. The 120-bed, state-of-the-art nursing facility is financed through state and federal dollars. It will be located adjacent to the Jackie Withrow Hospital on South Eisenhower Drive. Construction on the facility is expected to take up to two years. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Caroline McGregor. The Allegheny Front, based in Pittsburgh, is a public radio program that reports on environmental issues in the region. Here's their latest story about workshops being held by the National Academics to study the health impacts on East Palestine, Ohio, train disaster. Hi, Julie. So what's the purpose of these sessions? 
So the National Academies are three institutions that bring together experts to weigh in on important issues and inform public policy. In this case, the train cars were carrying various industrial chemicals that were released into the community. And if you remember, five cars full of vinyl chloride, a known human carcinogen, were purposely vented and then set on fire. That created a dark chemical plume seen for miles around. The National Academies are bringing together a committee. It includes toxicologists, epidemiologists, medical emergency responders, and even a local pastor to look at what's already known about the health effects of the disaster and what questions remain. Maureen Lichtfeld, the dean of the Graduate School of Public Health at the University of Pittsburgh, is on the committee. And this is not a committee that will come up with conclusions and specific recommendations, but it's really coming together in a holistic way of sharing ideas and expertise. Lichtfeld was involved in emergency response after the attack on the World Trade Center on 9-11 and also the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico in 2010. She says it's essential that the community is part of the process to understand which questions to ask and how to answer them. How do we can we best measure exposure? What are the kinds of physical and mental health effects we should focus on over a longer period of time? What happens with the people who were exposed? So what is the process? What's being discussed at these meetings? The National Academies is hosting four public sessions over two weeks, one about mental health, another about pediatric issues, and the first one was about public health services and health care in the area. Misty Allison was there. She's an East Palestine resident who's running for mayor. It's really important to look forward and what we can do because we can't change the past. Allison's family lives 1.2 miles from the derailment site, and they returned home a couple of days after the evacuation order was lifted. She says they then had acute medical issues, and local providers treated their symptoms but didn't know how else to help them. I would say, especially with our two small children, I'm just really worried about you know, if there are going to be any long-term impacts. And if so, like, how can we be proactive versus being reactive? And what can be done from a public health perspective to ensure that everybody in the community is on the same page and is getting the best healthcare monitoring and tracking for years to come that we need? So these were some of the questions the National Academies wanted to hear from residents to help the committee understand what people want to know more about. What were some of the other issues raised? There were a variety of scientists and researchers at the first session. Wes Vins, health commissioner at Columbiana County General Health District, attended the meeting. And the committee really wanted to hear from people like him, too. I spoke with Vins after the session about the very first things his office heard from people after the derailment. So the concerns of the resident, uh, obviously, first and foremost, was fire, uh, right? Smoke. Uh, I'm displaced from my home. Then we started to hear about folks that, that had concerns for health, right? Uh, they had concerns for the environment, the, the streams, and, and certainly drinking water in a rural community. Vins was really proud of the health response. They helped open a community health clinic in East Palestine and coordinated with state agencies and the nearby hospital to get people additional treatment. We're very fortunate to have that level of collaboration between mental health, public health, physical health, and emergency response. And I think that's something I think we did very well. Still, he says all the unknowns were hard on people, and he thinks there's more to be done. We need to recognize that. We need to 
address the stress and the mental health pieces as much as we do the physical pieces. The second session held by the National Academies focused on pediatrics, and they wanted to hear about continuing health concerns for parents and their children. What can you tell us about that? Well, one thing, mental health is something parents are also attuned to. The committee is asking what people want to know, and Zuja Jenis said she and her nine-year-old are still living in a hotel because the chemical smell in their home, which is about a mile from the derailment site, makes them sick. So I'm curious of how to help my son kind of, I mean, he picks up on a lot of hearing about medical symptoms, and I think he's a little nervous. And without us understanding what testing means or what anything means, like, what's a good way to, like, talk about it or just, like, kind of, you know, exist with it for the time being that doesn't, in a way that doesn't scare him. So it sounds like there are still a lot of questions and issues to be addressed. What is the role of this committee going forward? Well, while this group of researchers are to some degree looking back at the public health response to the derailment and explosion, it's not investigating what happened earlier this year. That's not the goal. Committee Chair Kristen Malecki is Director for Environmental and Occupational Health Services at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She says after the public sessions, the full committee will meet in early November. To really have a conversation about the impacts of the train derailment and what future research might be needed. Really, where are the gaps in understanding? How can a research enterprise potentially address those uncertainties and move forward? Okay. Thanks, Julie. You're welcome. The Allegheny Front is based in Pittsburgh and reports on regional environmental news. It is 7.54. This is West Virginia Morning. And for weather in West Virginia today, mostly sunny skies. Temperatures in the mid-60s to low 70s. Tonight, cloudy skies and lows from the mid-40s and 50s. Thursday, mostly sunny skies. Temperatures from the mid-60s to 70s. Thursday night, partly cloudy skies with lows from the mid-50s. Friday, mostly sunny skies, temperatures in the high 60s to mid-70s. With Saturday, sunny skies again with temperatures in the mid-60s to 70s. Support for WVPB is provided by Dutch Miller Subaru in Charleston. Dutch Miller Automotive is proud to be dedicated to multiple community service initiatives and local charities. More about our team and the Subaru Love Promise at DutchMillerSubaru.com. Upshur County native and best-selling novelist Jane Ann Phillips is the author of six books, including her latest, Night Watch, a story which takes place at the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum several years after the Civil War ended. Bill Lynch spoke with Phillips about writing novels and growing up near the asylum. So how did you start with Night Watch? My work tends to start with a voice. I started out as a poet, so I I tend to sort of hear lines and then kind of be into writing something about a very specific character in a specific voice. And that person is involved in some kind of situation that I I may not even really understand in terms of the future. Uh, But I started writing the the section that begins the novel. Uh, Sometimes the beginning section will end up 50 pages in or 100 pages in. But this time it be, it stayed uh, as the beginning. And we have this 12-year-old girl who's basically the adult in her family for the past two years. Um, she's a bit of an unreliable narrator because it becomes clear that she doesn't remember everything. 
and that she hasn't been necessarily told her true history. So there are a lot of mysteries involved. We do know that they're on their way to the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Connolly believes that she's helping this man that she has been told to call Papa get her mother to the asylum for her, quote, rest and cure. But they get to the asylum and Connolly says, should I help her down? Should I help her? Should I help her in? And he says, well, she's not going in without you. And it turns out that he's abandoning them. The, the book is set following the Civil War. Why that generation? Well, it's the third in a war trilogy, really, starting with Machine Dreams, which had to do with the Vietnam War, and then Larkin Termite, which had to do with the Korean War. Uh, it just seemed natural to go back to the Civil War because it casts such a shadow over us in our time. I mean, it's a time in which there were migrations of people, separated families, uh, scant resources, divided populations who had more or less tribal allegiances to one belief or the other. And I wanted to look at what happened to real people, a family caught up in all this. The book really unspools various secrets throughout and I was delighted that that happened because I think life is a lot like that. And I feel as though, you know, the title Night Watch is the perfect title because it's about those people, no matter the time, no matter the situation, who are sort of moral fulcrums, in a sense, within their own families, within their own communities. And it just is their tendency or or their their natures to try to protect, to try to keep going. And I feel as though no matter the chaos, human nature and historical nuance bends toward the night watch, protecting what is until it's safe. So those were some of the ideas that I was playing with. I also loved going back to a time that was pre-industrial, a time when despite the chaos of human interactions, the world was in some ways untouched. The idea that that people lived so in harmony with nature, you know, that it, it took them all day to simply put up their food and uh, take care of their patch of ground. But they were living very close to, you know, the natural world. You're from West Virginia originally. So the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum is, it's a landmark. Uh, how much did you know about it when you lived here as opposed to, I mean, when you went away and where you are now and writing about it? Well, I grew up in, in Buchanan, so that's 20 minutes, you know, from Weston. The Weston State Asylum was actually still operating even into the late 60s and 70s. Then, of course, it was shut down. And thank goodness someone purchased the building, and it's now a nonprofit. And every time I go back to West Virginia, I go there. I'm just fascinated by the building itself and the fact that it's one of you know, nearly every state had one of these huge Kirkbride institutions. And of course, I've done a lot of research into Thomas Story Kirkbride and his life and his ideas, which were really extremely contemporary. The idea that each person should be treated humanely, no matter what their mental illness might be. And Kirkbride's ideas were set out in a book that's oft quoted in the in the novel. And asylums all over the country were, were built according to his very, very specific plans. But he believed in a treatment regimen for each person that had to do with long walks on 
nature trails that went back through the mountains, maybe working around the institution. They had their own dairy, their own vegetable gardens, their own very beautiful flower gardens. And he also believed that people could improve and be released from the asylum. And if they had more difficulty later on, they would come back. He didn't see any problem with that. He believed that that we could be treated in such a way that we can find our own balance. As someone from Appalachia, do you think you see the region differently than someone who's not from here? How do you see Appalachia? Well, you know, West Virginia is the only state that is completely within. And it's always bothered me, for instance, that many educated Americans don't know that West Virginia fought on the side of the Union, that they seceded from Virginia and fought on the side of the Union. So I wanted to present this particular part of Appalachia, which I think of as being in the tri-state area, sort of northwestern West Virginia. The book is Night Watch. Jane Ann Phillips, thank you very much. West Virginia Morning is produced with help from Bill Lynch, Brianna Heaney, Caroline McGregor, Chris Schultz, Curtis Tate, Emily Rice, Eric Douglas, Liz McCormick, and Randy Yoey. West Virginia Morning is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting, which is solely responsible for its content, and you can keep up with the latest news throughout the day on our website at wvpublic.org.